0: Pursuing the Dream Podcast. I am Jason Robbins. I'll be your host this evening, morning, afternoon, depending on when you are listening to this, where you are listening to it. Episode one hundred and five. Made it five episodes. It's five more than I had before. And uh, so today on the uh, on the podcast, I have a very special guest, Mister Rick. We just call him Mr. Rick. His real name is Patrick, but he goes by Mr. Rick. He is an older gentleman we have known for um, some time since opening the store. And uh, an interesting guy is is an understatement. One of the most interesting people I've ever met. Uh, Definitely one of the most uh, just kind of. You know he's very subtle. I don't want to say he's in your face, but all of his art is is something that kind of smacks you in the face. But he's a very gentle, soft spoken, uh, little 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 guy from New Orleans. Um, amazing story, and I'm really happy I was able to get him uh, to be on the podcast. And so you know when I when I do uh, these intros and the outros, I'm always doing them after. I do the interview and this time I cheated. I've been so busy that I am recording on the same day that I'm going to uh, release it. But I did this interview all the way back last weekend, which would be uh, what the ninth or so. Um, And I had recorded the, the uh, episode 104 a week before that. So it feels like I haven't done this in ages. The, the, The the magic of radio is that it all appears like it's it's happening uh, in sequence. But uh, yeah, I I went down to New Orleans, like I had mentioned. I rode down there in a fierce storm. I'm hoping to put together a a little video doc um, of the time down there. Because I got some good footage going in to new orleans and uh a good six minute video on my I got, a, I got a new gimbal which you know steadies your shot but i walked all the way into the market and went right up to mr rick in the in the stall that he's sold out um for this past year and you know he started selling back in uh, the late 80s 90s and uh walk right up on him and you get the you get the feel of all of New Orleans, which is really back in action. There's definitely more, uh, homeless and poverty than, than I had seen pre pre pandemic. And I, I was there for the pandemic and it was, it was a ghost town, a really sad, uh, sight to see no music, no bars, no, nobody in the streets. Some of the restaurants were open, the hotels were obviously open, but, uh, New Orleans is is just roaring back into life, uh, but definitely more homeless than than before. And there was always a sizable amount, but I, I think that that's something that's happening uh, in lots of big cities across America that the homeless population is growing. But it's a uh, it's such a beautiful city, and I only got basically a day and a half with new Orleans stayed the night I rode down early morning it's about a six and a half hour drive six hours I always have to stop at Parang's seafood in Baton Rouge which is on the way and then Baton Rouge is about an hour hour and a half outside of New Orleans but I always got to stop at Parang's and I got to go sit on the patio outside and you have a uh, New Orleans beer you get some gumbo and oysters on the half shell and it was raining and it was amazing. Got back in the car and uh, headed the rest of the way to New Orleans, bought a little traffic and drove around for 45 minutes trying to find parking, finally parked and then walked the, the length of the market, which is a couple city blocks. You know, you, you start at Cafe Dumont around there and you can walk through uh You know, multiple restaurants and shops and lots of touristy stuff right there in Decatur, and and then you hit the French Market, the the big flea market. And Mr. Rick was really against it being called that. That's, I guess, the official name that they put onto it, but it's definitely not a flea market. It's a, it's one big collection. There's people from all over the world, lots of Africans, lots of Indians, um, lots of native New Orleans folk that are selling wares, lots of people from China. uh, And they all got their stalls and tables set up and they're selling absolutely everything. And it's really cool. And Mr. Rick had talked to me, you'll hear in the interview, we talked about how he used to go as a kid to uh, buy his vegetables there with his mother, which is amazing. And then hundreds of years ago, this place, you know, they used to sell, you'd have the butcher over there and you'd have the guy with the veggies over here Go buy some some rum and some whiskey down at the market. What a time. Sometimes I think I was born into the wrong era. But alas, we do what we can, right? So I made it down there and did the uh, did the interview with him. I shot some good footage. Like I said, I hope to put that together and I'll release it either maybe as an exclusive or I don't know how we're gonna do it, but I'm gonna put it together when I can when I can get some time. And then what we did is I followed him and his wife back to, um, his house. Really though, he, he, I got there early. So he, he continued to sell like he did. And he's got a guy that helps him to load up the thing. And I said, well, I'm going to get out of your hair. I was there for maybe 30 minutes and I went and got my fill. I had to do a very quick, big gulp of the, of the whole French quarter. Tried to hit all my spots very quickly. Ran down, got some cafe au lait and some beignets at Cafe Dumont, which was amazing. And walked around, went to Voodoo Authentica, went and saw the saw the sights, walked down Royal Street, looked looked at some antiques, looked at some art, listened to some music in the streets. I just love the town. I really do every time I go. And then uh, went back to. Mr. Ricks, that's where we did Uh, continued the video interview, walked through his amazing house. And then we sat down and um, we did the, the interview that you're going to hear. Then I bought a table from him. Every time I go, I, I, I got a, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been buying up a large portion of his collection because the guy makes everything and he has everything to sell. And when I first met him, that's what I was doing was I was down there looking for gator heads for my, for my oddity shop and I needed big gator heads. And I don't, I I don't remember if I covered this in the interview with him or not. I don't think I went into detail. If I did, then I'm repeating myself, but it was, it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I was, I was just opening up the shop, but I had gone down to new Orleans. I think it was a birthday or maybe Mimi's birthday or something, but, uh, last, last two days that we were there, and again, this was sort of ghost down. So the French market itself was just dead. There was maybe, you know, what, 10 vendors in this whole space that can now hold a hundred. But I was asking around, I asked the, uh, the main managers of the place, Hey, where can I get some gator skulls? Where can I get some gator heads? And, uh, and I'm talking taxidermy, of course which if there are any people that are against taxidermy, we talked to Mr. Rick. He is a, an artist. He's also a taxidermist. He talks about, uh, the validation behind it and the process behind it. But, uh, all of the stuff that he taxidermy, uh, is, is his own art. And it's also something that he uses all parts of it, which is pretty unique. So, but I was looking for gator heads because that's what you get when you're in New Orleans. And I was going to take them back and use them, um, for display in my shop. And, and so I'm asking people and I asked, uh, I asked the front desk. They pointed me to this guy who was from, from Africa. He was from North Africa and he was selling these little voodoo dolls made in Thailand. Right. So you can figure that out. But he said, Oh yeah, you got to talk to Mr. Rick and gave me an email address. He didn't know phone number, nothing. He's like, yeah, he hasn't sold in here for you know a couple of years. He's not around in the any pandemic anything, but, He's your guy. So I had emailed him that night and I was at breakfast the next morning. We were leaving that next day. We're at breakfast and I got an email back. He's like, give me a call. Mr. Rick said, give me a call. So I immediately gave him a call. He said, you know, you can, uh, in his little New Orleans accent, Hey, you know, you can come across to the, uh, to the, uh, the West bank. And I'm probably saying it incorrect. I think he's on the West bank. He's like, you can come over here and see, see my house and, you know, hang out with us and everything. I was, you know, and I'm, I'm like, well, I sure, I guess uh, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe just stop by. I tried to tell him, I'm like, I, I really only have five minutes. We're, we're going to be on our way out, but I'll stop five minutes on our way. And told Mimi, I'm like, look, I don't know what I'm walking into. We're going to this guy's house way off in the neighborhoods of New Orleans. And so six hour ride back, of course, so I'm like, on top of that, I really was saying we ought to hit the road. We drove down there and it was maybe what, two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And I go and knock on this guy's door. It's a perfectly normal neighborhood, perfectly normal house. I told Mimi, just wait in the car. Let me go feel this out. I walk in and I'm immediately greeted by this life size gorilla in a tuxedo. And This is not a real gorilla. He doesn't, there's no real monkeys, right? Uh, He just does art. He makes these fiberglass multi-tiered molds and uh, glass eyes made in in Germany. And then he hand paints them, airbrushes them. Lots of love go into these pieces. But this monkey's just in his front. And then you look left and you look right. And it's just, it's not only all of his art, but it's all of these rare exotic carved wood pieces and carved art and things that he brought back from the Philippines and from uh, all the other uh, Asian countries that he's, that he's traveled to every time that he would travel him and his wife, they would bring these amazing things back. And he had a great eye for, for art and for sculptures and for, for furniture. So his entire house is just this mind blowing thing. And I, I told him right then and he was, I got the most amazing loving feeling immediately from him. And I just took two steps in and I'm like, you know what? My wife has to see this. And we were there for probably five hours with him and his wife drinking coffee and doing doing walkthroughs of his house. I ended up buying a ton of stuff, all pieces out of his collection that are on display in our shop and then had gone down and did that one other time. And then uh, before we opened, he actually came up. He drove up from New Orleans. They stayed the night. I put him up in the hotel Went out to dinner and everything, and he brought me a bunch of other pieces that I had had set aside, including the gorilla. So the gorilla now uh, stands in the Dreaming Peddler. I'm sure maybe he's going to throw him up on the social media so you can get a picture. His name is Olivier, and he wears a big sombrero in my shop. That was something I added on. Big big glasses, too. So that's, that's Mr. Rick. And what he's driven by, I after after knowing him these years and and the interview I still don't know what drives him he, he's he's like a big kid definitely i I see a I see a big kid in him uh, somebody that's just timeless and amazing and he trained under Bob Ross I mean lots of people watch Bob Ross now he 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 went through three whole training sessions learning how to be a Bob Ross instructor under Bob Ross so in the uh in that video I'm going to do, a, I do a walkthrough and we have all of his different pictures with him and Bob Ross together. And, um, you know, all these, these pictures and letters that him and Bob had together. Amazing guy. And, and I had, uh, this trip down the thing that I took back because I saw a lot of similar items. You know, he, he, he likes to, when he gets a good design, he'll replicate it with the monkeys and whatnot. And, but I had always set aside this one table that he had brought back from the Philippines, I think in the eighties or nineties, the most amazing coffee table I've ever seen. It's carved out of one piece of wood and it's got uh, bears and jaguars, dragons and lions and all of these carved animals in this amazing, beautiful stained wood. And they're all circling this, this giant sphere in the center and then glass top and, And carved wood legs, this amazing coffee table. And he said he was willing to part with it after all these years. So I told him, I was like, well, this this trip down, I'm going to grab that table. And I did. So now I have this table. Did the interview with him and then said my goodbyes to him and his lovely wife. And then headed back out into neighborhoods and went to Giacomo's. Now, if you've ever been to New Orleans or you plan on going to New Orleans, I cannot recommend enough. I'm a big foodie. Everywhere I go, I'm a big I'm a big food tourist and Giacomo's is one of my favorite places in the world. Honestly, top top 3, I would say. Um and I've been a lot of places, been a lot of good places. I think Giacomo's was always in my top 5 and then this last trip, top 3. And I had such weird stuff that, you know, I'm not even going to list it out. I'll, I don't want to ruin the surprise, but didn't even get seated until 10 p.m. They're blasting Nirvana and Foo Fighters while you're eating escargot and and you know rabbit shank and just these amazing decadent foods uh, on a uh, picnic tablecloth with you know these neon lights everywhere and posters and paintings on the ceiling and it, it's just it's a it's an acid trip in there it's amazing. So I I cannot go to New Orleans without stopping at Giacomo's. I passed through last time and didn't get to go, and so this time I I made a special trip. Didn't get out of there until like midnight. Restaurant was still banging. It was it was great. And then fell asleep that night. Went back into the city to meet up with our guest for next week, Ryan Hitchin, who is a childhood friend of mine, lost touch with, and had rekindled the friendship. After finding out that the guy had moved to New Orleans of all places many years ago, he was just playing jazz down there. Now he has his own band and he plays uh, plays gigs every day with his band, and is a professional working musician and uh, business owner now. So we went and had this great interview in the park, sitting on a sitting on a bench in the park down the street from the straight cat where he had his uh, his show. I recorded some of that uh, some of that show and I'll I'll interject the interview and have some of the music. And then I headed out directly from there and went to Lafayette, which is just a couple hours away from New Orleans, still still on the coast there and went to the Stuller Bridge event. Originally I was planning on going and talking to a bunch of business owners at the Stuller Bridge event. And Stuller is a jewelry maker. Um they are one of our, our vendors, right? So I buy a lot, of, a lot of jewelry from them, chains, sterling silver chains, some gold stuff. And they have this, this great get together where they brought us down, put me up in a hotel. They fed us, uh, give me walkthroughs. of their amazing company. But I had planned originally on trying to shoot or uh, record a, a third episode there by talking to a bunch of business people. It just didn't feel right. Uh, everyone was there doing their thing. I was kind of there as an observer. I didn't really want to interject on a lot of people's conference. And it was a very short conference, a couple of days. And then I had to leave early uh, to come back and make my first sales meeting, which was really cool. So that was my uh, first real estate sales meeting. I made the choice to to leave the conference early, to prioritize. And I'm glad that I did. So... One thing I am going to do, though, I met the owner and the CEO of Stuller. And this guy's been called the, I love the quote, was the Jeff Bezos of jewelry. So he was one of the first guys to streamline online sales and overnight delivery to all these people across the country. And his startup was amazing. The guy's an Eagle Scout and had started at 19 and had his thing fully running in his early 20s. Now, you know, they do like 500 million in sales every year every annual, uh, fiscal year. And, uh, he's just worth, you know, billions of dollars. But the guy was, the guy's just walking around. He's taking the classes with us. He's the most approachable, nicest guy in the world. So he was sitting behind me in one of the classes and, and I just pulled him aside. I was like, Hey, I have this little tiny podcast and would love for you to be a guest on it. He said he'd be happy to, we didn't get a chance while we were there, but we, we said that we would either do it remote where I am going back there in October and um, set it up with the secretary to do podcast with him because he is, he's someone inspirational and you can't find a better example of entrepreneurship um, than in his existence where he basically had walked into a jewelry store uh, in his teens, trying to buy a ring for his girlfriend at the time and didn't have enough money, but he really liked one. So he, he asked, Can I can I sweep and do little things around the store to help pay this ring down? Because I guess show up. So he did. Then opened up his own thing. A couple of years later opened up a wholesale business and turned that into a multi million dollar empire. It's amazing. And he's a nice guy. When do you ever see that? So that'll be a, a future episode. But we're making this a two parter. This is our New Orleans two parter, starting with today's episode, episode one hundred five. Guest is Mr. Rick. I hope you enjoy it. Touch base after. All right. So today, very special guest. We're all the way down in New Orleans. I've Had a great time walking around. Got to see my good friend Mr. Rick and his natural element, both in the French market and also in his amazing house, which is an artist wonderland. Many, many years of... Uh, art and work and uh and and love and care has gone into into this amazing house and his workshop we're sitting right now in his living room and and i'll i'll have the uh the pictures and the video as an aid but there's no way to describe uh the type of setting that i'm in it is overflowing with beauty and art and we're sitting at the uh dining room table here and i'm talking with mr rick how you doing today mr rick
1: I'm doing fine. I'm glad to see you again. I'm glad you came down to New Orleans and uh, got to some, eat some beignets and uh, some good food. And I know you're going to probably be eating some more later on tonight. So uh, I know you're always excited when you come back down this way. So it's good love, to see you.
0: I love New Orleans. First time, I'll, I'll give a brief backstory. The first time we met was years back. We uh, had come down, Mimi me, me, myself, come down to New Orleans and And it was right around the pandemic when we were opening the store. And I was going through the French market, and I was asking just random vendors, hey, I really need some Gator Heads. And uh, Some big Gator Heads. I needed big Gator Heads because everyone has the small little guys. I wanted some big staple pieces for the store. And uh, a gentleman who was selling little voodoo dolls had said, actually, no, I went to the window first. And they said, you got to go talk to this guy. They led me to another guy finally talked to the guy that's selling the voodoo dolls and he's like all right you got to talk to mr rick only had an email and i remember we're sitting at breakfast i emailed mr rick and you emailed me back the same day we were supposed to head out of town and he said well stop by i've got i've got a couple gator heads here and so i told mimi i'm like look i don't know what i'm walking into (laughs) (laughs) who knows what this is gonna be like i parked outside we're on, our, we're on the road, ready to go back to East Texas, 5 or 6 o'clock at night, and, uh, you know, a six-hour drive ahead. And, and I took two steps in, into your house, Mr. Rick, and I turned right around. And I said, i got to get my wife. There is no way. And, and it was because we were facing the big gorilla, Olivier, that's now in our store. And you had that guy sitting in your living room.
1: Yeah, I've been having him for a while, but uh, that was one of my pride and joys.
0: Oh, he's well taken care of. People people take pictures and selfies next to him. Oh yeah,
1: he's he's amazing. I love him.
0: <laughs> but we we came in and we were here for hours, and so I got home at you know three or four a.m. But it was it was because we were so overwhelmed, and and meeting you was so amazing. It was such a great first trip.
1: Yeah, y'all uh, went through the house and everything, and and decided to buy some of my furniture. As I told y'all, I was uh, selling everything. So we want to sell the house and uh, move back to the Philippines, where my wife is from. And that's and, uh,
0: that's news to me. I, I we in a, in the little video uh, insert that I'm going to have here, uh, while we're walking through, you drop that big bomb that that you're looking to leave New Orleans, which is your home, <laughs> of how many years? Because you were well, born. Well here. I was
1: born and raised here, but I was in a, uh, the, the U.S. Air Force uh, for 22 years. And uh I was actually going to retire and go to Florida because I had been stationed down there three times, and uh we had three kids, and they were all at the age of like uh seven, eight, and nine, something like that. So I want to get them in school and I want them to have them close to the beach Naturally. and my mom says, uh, "Where are you gonna retire to?" and uh, I'm the only child, and I was felt guilty because I'd been away for so many, many years. I spent like fifteen years all in the Far East. And uh, missed a lot of Christmases and birthdays and couldn't break her heart. So I said, uh, I'm coming home. And she says, you're coming, coming here? I said, yeah, I'm coming home. She said, uh, well, that's great. That's good news for me. So that made me feel real good that I made the right choice. I kind of thought about it for you know a couple of days, actually. And I let God just give me, guide me. He said, go home to your mama. I said, okay, I'm gone.
0: So w- tell us about growing up in, in New Orleans.
1: Actually, uh, the town I grew up in, is it's it's a composite of New Orleans. It's on New yeah. Orleans city limits, but it's on the other side of the river. Yeah. So we're not on the New Orleans side. We're on the West Bank side. Yeah, The West Bank side is called Algiers. And uh, Algiers was a fantastic place to grow up. You know, we're talking back, I was born in 1944, and in uh, September I'll be 79 years old. So growing up there uh, in the 50s and 60s was just a wonderful time. Everybody knew everybody. You couldn't go nowhere and do anything without your mama finding out about it or your daddy. And uh, back then the telephone calls was you actually pick up the phone and talk to the operator and gave them a number. I want to talk to Forest Five Six Seven Eight Three. Oh, Mister Hodges, that's who you want to talk to. Yeah, I want to speak to Mister Hodges. You know, and the phone would ring, and Mister Hodges would get on a phone.
0: You know, did did your family uh, celebrate Mardi Gras?
1: Oh yeah, we were big Mardi Gras, big, uh, big, Mardi Gras fan people. Yeah.
0: So so interestingly enough, I'm putting it together now. But the, the guest that I had last week that I mentioned to you, mm-hmm. that she was an equestrian therapist. You know, that she also was born. In New Orleans. Oh, okay. She lives in East Texas now. Yeah. But we were talking about her growing up, and she's she's a little younger than you are. Mm-hmm. But she was talking about growing up and going to Mardi Gras, and she moved away about five or six. But she's got very vivid memories of the yeah. community getting together. From well, Mardi Gras. I
1: was me and uh, another uh, boy by the name of Errol Heindel, We were the first ones to operate the Blaine Kerns Mardi Gras King Kong. That was the first animated float they have ever had, and so in animation, me and Errol had to get underneath the float at five o'clock in the morning, because the, this was the Rex Parade, the big, the, the big boy. Yeah. And so we had to get in. We had a little ice chest. We had some, had some drinks. We had some food, and we we're sitting on two by fours, and we had these big old uh, pulleys that we had to pull, uh, pull, and. We would go with right hand, left hand. As we we'd pull up and down, the arms would move. And then the other boy, he had the one that would move the head. And then we had ice, uh, dry ice in a big bucket. And then we pressed the button and smoke would come out of his mouth. And that was King Kong. That was his first animated float. That was 1961.
0: Was this your first uh, fascination with gorillas and monkeys? Yeah. Because that's a reoccurring theme in your art.
1: Yeah. Uh, after that, uh, King Kong became my buddy. I mean, I know everything about King Kong. I got all the movies back to 1932, 38, wherever the first one was, and all of them, I have them all.
0: When did you first figure out that that you were you were good at art? That you were an artist?
1: Um, I never really thought about being good at it. Did
0: you come from an artistic family? No,
1: no, not at all. Art kind of came by the way of me doing taxidermy.
0: When did you start that?
1: I started taxidermy actually in 1975. Uh, I was stationed down in Florida. I was at Homestead Air Force Base. And I went fishing. We were used to fish. I'm a big avid fisherman, especially bass fishing. And I caught a nine-pound bass, and I wanted to get it mounted. So I went to a taxidermist. I said, "I want to get this fish mounted." And he gave me this price that kind of just blew me away, which I didn't have the money. I said, "Well, I'm not going to spend this kind of money. I'm going to mount it myself." So I went to the library, and I looked to see if they had any books. And sure enough, they had a book. It says how to do how to do taxidermy. And um, so I checked the book out, and so I read it and read it, and I said, okay, I'm gonna try this. Well, anyway, I did it. I mounted it. It looked horrible. It, it didn't look like the fish. And I hand painted it, because I didn't have an airbrush, I hand painted it. And my mother happened to come down uh, to visit, and she loved it. She's like, oh, that's the most beautiful fish I've ever seen. You know, that's what mamas are supposed to say. But it was terrible.
0: <laughs> when, when did you when did you join the army air force the air force yeah Yeah. don't insult me no 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 No. i'm joking is it, no there no, is, is all a, all branches of the is service a is, div- is uh, division there
1: yeah we got five branches everybody says four branches can't leave out the coast guard coast guard does some unbelievable especially down jobs. here especially yeah. down here with yeah. the hurricanes and everything i went in 1962
0: wait and and what what was your specialty going in
1: uh I came out of high school with very bad grades, could not make college. Barely made it out of high school. The only thing that got me through was playing sports. I was good at baseball. And so uh, I was able to get out of high school on a, uh, with my coach basically telling my teachers, uh, give him give him a grade and let him graduate. So anyway, I made it out. And uh, I went to work on a, I wanted to go on a river with my dad. My dad said, no, you're not coming out here. Uh, too dangerous, and they don't pay no money. What did your dad do? My dad was a uh, he was a carpenter on a on a uh, uh, tugboats. Oh, really? Yeah, and which is really really what, tough. What was what was he doing? Uh, he carpentry built, on the. Well, what, what they would do is they would buy the tugboat, and it was just a hull, and then he had to go in there and build all the fabricate fabrication. Yeah, there's no there's no square walls. There's no yeah, everything yeah. is rounded, so he was a specialty. Yeah, he could build all this stuff. So
0: I would argue, maybe that's a little bit of your artistic because that's
1: he taught you know, me that a lot regular of regular
0: carpentry. you know, A lot of straight lines, but when you're working with curved wood, all curved does, wood, did. yeah, it takes uh, an artistic eye.
1: He taught me how to do that also, yeah. and, and and how we came back to play. Going, we'll jump forward a little bit to where, nineteen after I retired, nineteen eighty three from the Air Force, I got a job on a fireboat on the river. And uh, working with my cousin out there. And just so happens a guy comes in, one of these carpenters from the, they needed something fixed. And this boy comes in, and he's trying to put this panel, this panel piece up there. And he was kept going through, this was birch plywood, which is around about $35 a sheet. And he would cut it, wouldn't fit, he'd throw it in the river. Cut another piece, wouldn't fit, throw it in the river. (laughs) As I watched him go through this whole thing, burning cast. Yeah, finally I told him. I said, "Let me show you how it's done," and I showed him. He, and the next piece he cut, it was perfect. And he's like, "I would have never." Ever, I said, "No, you would never guessed this. This this came from the top professional, Pat Kinnair. I said, "He he was a master of doing tugboats."
0: So, so tell tell me all the places that you went while you were in the air force. Um, what, what were the what were the years? I went in
1: 1962. Uh, and I went to Keesler Air Force Base in August, August 1st. And then I went, uh, we stayed there for the whole month of September and through October. That was eight weeks training. And then I went to uh, Amarillo, Texas. We were going to mm-hmm. supply school. I went to Amarillo, Texas. I stayed there for from October, November, December. And then I graduated the 15th of December. And so... Uh, my first assignment was Tokyo, Japan. Ah. It was actually called Tachikawa Air Base, which is no longer there anymore. But it's only one hour from Tokyo.
0: How did you like Tokyo?
1: I loved it. I yeah. loved. I love Tachikawa. That's, one, that's loved, one of my favorite places yeah. in the world. And so I get there, and I'm. I just made 18. I was 18 years old, little snotty-nosed kid. You know, <laughs> didn't know nothing. And then another guy gets off the airplane, and it's snowing. I mean, it's snow. We we arrived there. Well. To make it we went back I'll go back a little bit to make a real quick story that was really funny was that uh I came home on leave before i went before I was going to go to japan and so I came home for christmas I had to leave the day after christmas on december twenty
0: sixth
1: mm-hmm. get to get to California as we were driving to the airport the car broke down and i was going to and i I was going miss my flight. A state trooper stopped to help us. And I told him, I said, I'm in the Air Force. I got to get to the airport. I'm going to miss my flight. And now I'm going to California. From California, I'm going to Japan. He says, get in the car. He would get in. My mom and my sister, my brother and my, my daddy stayed with the car. He puts the lights on, the sirens on, and he flies me. I mean, we speed. We're we going down, I-10, and we get to the airport. I get there, and, I, and my dad and my, my brother finally got there before while I was walking to get on a plane. So anyway, they was able to see me before I left. By the skin of your teeth. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I got to Japan. It was snowing. Oh, Lord. It was it was so much snow. We we arrived on January 1st. There was nobody there. Everybody was in their barracks because nobody was working. It was a holiday. And so we get there, we, and the guy brings us to uh, the first sergeant's uh building and he was there he was on duty and uh, i wasn't even expecting us to come so anyway they brought us to the barracks and um so yeah that was kind of kind of neat yeah my first experience
0: we're you know coming from new orleans especially or this this area did you are did you always have an interest in other cultures
1: yeah i did and japan was one of them yeah Japan, any anything in the Far East was was always fascinating to me. I'm the same way. I loved the the Chinese writings. I mm-hmm. loved the Japanese music. I loved everything about the Far East. It the was, food. It, it, it's uh,
0: the food is my favorite. That that's the biggest thing for me is the, is the food,
1: food. Food wasn't wasn't mine. Mine was more of the arts. Yes, of of yeah. the the beautiful things that the, that people made that you you can't even figure out how they make it.
0: So, how long were you in the Air Force? Twenty-two years. Twenty-two years. So, uh, Vietnam. In, what, what, what were you doing during during Vietnam? Yeah,
1: I from from Japan. I went to Okinawa. I came back to the states. I stayed thirty days. I went to Thailand. Hmm. I was the first one to go into Bangkok, Thailand, and wow. uh, that changed me from from supply to small arm weapons. Huh. So I was in small arm weapons, and there was no base. There was no nothing when we got there. We got there early. Me and a lieutenant. And uh, finally, Red Horse, that's the construction people that come in for the Air Force to build everything. Well, the guns started coming in from the airport, and it was all addressed to me because I was the only one that could sign for guns. And I was a two-stripe. I only had two stripes on my arm, and here I'm signing for 22,000 guns coming in. And I had to build a, a gun room from scratch. I had to design it and everything. The Red House people were going to build a building, but they didn't know how they were going to
0: so you needed a little artistic integrity. Yeah. So yeah. I think that that's probably the start, the, the building blocks of your uh, yeah. your future career of yeah. art there was mm-hmm. building these early gun rooms, huh? Yeah.
1: yeah. Being an engineer without an engineer degree, yeah. basically, because I had to figure out all these things.
0: Which has been a theme of our uh, our show, too, is is looking at trials by fire. So I think that these are your first trials by fire, huh? Yeah, it was. Throw As a matter of
1: fact, I did it, and uh, I actually got a, uh, Air Force Accommodation Medal for that, and also was awarded $5,000 from the U.S. government for designing this, this weapon room, which turned out to be I had to go and design. The same the same one was being built in nine other places in Thailand, in Thailand because all these bases, Utapal uh, and KP, I went to all of them. I opened up every one of them. And um, so, yeah, I had to get people... They'd be on the DOD list to be able to sign for guns.
0: Yeah. Because
1: you don't, two things you don't mess with the government their money and their guns.
0: So, where were you during uh, the Vietnam. Vietnam War?
1: 1965, I, I left Thailand and I went to uh, Da Nang. Yeah. I was in Da Nang, but I was still in weapons. And then I got assigned to what they call JustMag. JustMag was still out of Thailand. So, I was moving guns back and forth, back and forth. And I was flying in the helicopters, flying in the UE helicopters. Yeah. And uh, then uh, 1960, I stayed there in 1966, 67, I got assigned to the CIA. I was with Air America. I was with Air America for, for two and a half years, almost three years. Crazy operation. While Nam was going on, nobody knew about what was going on in Cambodia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Cambodia was another whole wall. Uh, the guy Pol Pot was... Inli- annihilating everybody. And if you ever saw the movie Killing Fields, when you see all those skulls, that's true. It was there. I witnessed it. It's It was terrible. It was horrible. But we was in there, and my job at that time, that was also small arms, but I was had to go in as airplanes from, we were flying, we was assigned with the T-28s. And uh, as the T-28s would, would go down, we would have to go into the jungle and c- cannibalize the engine off the plane, put it in a container, bring a helicopter in, pick it up, and ship it back to Kelly Air Force Base, Texas.
0: Well, we thank you for your service. Yeah, thank that, you. That's appreciate a long, it. That's a long career, though. You, yeah, I spent a lot of time man, huh? in
1: Japan, and then I went uh, uh, to Korea and um, back and forth into the States. I'd stay in the States maybe one year, two years, go back overseas, come back. After yeah, the Vietnam. yeah, after Vietnam, yeah, yeah. after Vietnam, I was there at like seventy six,
0: seventy seven. So, so do the math for me. <coughs> when did you When did you get out, and and got, did you um, come straight um, back to well, New Orleans? Uh,
1: before I did that, though, uh, my last assignment, I was, I was in uh, in Florida, and then they it was changing over to civilians mm-hmm. uh, to do. So I went back into supply after the war and everything. I went back into supply. So they're bringing in civilians to do the supplied work. So everybody had to take an assignment. What just so happens, my mom wasn't feeling well. So I put in, in for Orleans, u- right? yeah, I put in for a humanitarian assignment to be stationed at Keesla Air Force Base, Mississippi, which okay. is only an hour and, yeah. hour and 10 minutes or so from the house, 45 minutes, something like that. So I put in for it, and I got it. So uh, going back while I was in Korea, I adopted a little boy out of, out of Korea. He was three years old. Mm. When I adopted him, and so i had I had him with me. and uh, uh, we can talk about it. i was I was married to a Thai for eleven years, mm-hmm. and uh, she passed away. and uh, we she couldn't have any kids, but we adopted a little boy from Korea. And so he was with me. So when I left Florida and went to come to Keysla, we'd come home every weekend. And uh, for him to see his grandma. So and, I, I assume and so. you met
0: her during your time in Thailand, right? Yeah, and then yeah, she went to Korea with you. Yeah, she traveled all around. Traveling and all the And traveled back
1: to the States and everything. And yeah. you guys adopted a three-year-old kid, huh? Yeah, a little boy. And uh, so...
0: And and they what, all came back to the States with you?
1: Yeah, well, what happens was when we was in Mississippi, Miss me and him cause I had got... Uh, uh, she a, passed him. Yeah. yeah, so and my condolences too, that, that had to that 1979 hard. I went to the Philippines and I brought him with me to the Philippines. Yeah. That's where I met my wife that's now. Yes. We've been married 40 years. Been knowing each other for 43 years. She's the best. She, and uh, she's so great. Yeah, she's a, she's a great uh so when I met her she had two little girls. And so one was 5, my son was a 6 at the time and the other one was 7. So 5, 6 and 7. So uh, after two years of courting her and everything, um, cause she didn't like me at first. So after persistence, the best, the best ones need a little, yeah, not the persistent right. twisting arms and so forth. <laughs> and the kids got along really good. That's good. And so anyway, we got married in 1983 and I decided to come back home, get the kids in school and everything. So that's how we came back to new Orleans. We actually to come back to Gretna, Louisiana and, um, got the kids in school. And now they, uh, me and my wife, after we got back to the States, we have, a, we have a son together mm-hmm. and, um, uh, he's 36 years old. He's living in Alabama. The one that I adopted, uh, he actually died in a drowning accident at the age of 16. Oh my God. He, he died. Uh, we lost him. Where,
0: where did, where was that? That was in,
1: uh, Gulf Shores, Alabama. In fact, I was doing, I was at a taxidermy convention and I was doing a seminar and, um, the sheriff came in at the time, and he said, "Mr. Connect, can I talk to you?" I said, "Yes." Yeah. So I walked on. He says, uh, "Your son's missing." So I thought it was my youngest one, mm-hmm. the, the one. You know, he was eight, only eighteen yeah. months at the old, and, and now my boy Richie, he was sixteen, and then my daughter was fifteen. The other one was seventeen. And when I had left that morning from the hotel to tell them to go do my seminar. I said, if y'all go to the beach, y'all go across the street to the beach, don't let the little one in the water. Just you can go play on the, on the sand, mm-hmm. just be careful. So I'm I'm assuming that it was him that had that they was missing. So I get in the car, we're driving down the beach and we come down, I see I see the young one, uh, Patrick. I said, Oh, y'all oh, y'all found him, there he is right there. He says, No, not the youngest son. Your older son is gone. I'm like, No, man, I said that boy's too strong, he's too big. You know, he knows how to swim. He said, no, the undertow got him. And that. so that was on a Saturday morning, and his body washed ashore on Sunday. So he was able to retrieve the body back. And then we had our service, came back home, had services and so
0: forth. I can't imagine. So, yeah. So, I mean, both, but both your first wife and mm-hmm. then also the son you guys yeah. both adopted. That's almost like that entire chapter yeah. of your life closed.
1: Yeah, and then right after that, um, my mom passed. So it was a kind of like a domino effect. Comes in threes, huh? Yeah, it comes in threes. Yeah, and but we got to spend some time, you know, a couple. Of, I don't know, maybe last five years, four, four years, five years with my mom before she passed. She had a stroke, and she passed. Right now, my, I got one daughter. Uh, she's an engineer. She works for the Corps of Engineers. Uh, she's fantastic. She's got a great head. And then my my other one, uh, she's here in New Orleans also. What does she do? Uh, she's done. She's unemployed right now. She's been ill. Yeah. She's been. She's got some some issues yeah. that she's dealing with sure. right now. What so, about your son? Uh, my son, uh, he works for ADT uh, uh, Audio yeah. Systems for uh, cameras, and yeah. he's on the commercial side. So he's in charge of. All these contracts for like Walmart and Kmart and all these big big stores. You guys all still live together.
0: Still close. Yeah,
1: yeah, we're real close. I was I went to see him. I was there a couple of weeks ago. I went. I go to Alabama and see him, and uh, we had a crawfish ball there. So yeah, we get together all the time, you know.
0: So tell me, uh, when when did you start really turning your art into your business, and specifically, when did you? get close to Bob Ross, because everyone we tell about that. Yeah,
1: Bob Ross is, uh, uh, yeah, what happened was when I was stationed at Keesler Air Force Base, that was 1978, 78 to 79, every place I would go, I'd get stationed at, I'd go in the phone book and I'd find the taxidermist, I'd go look for the taxidermist, and I would put my uniform on and I'd go in there and say, hey guys, I'm so-and-so, I'm Rick, Uh, how y'all doing, Uh, I want to learn taxidermy. Teach me how to do it. I'm no threat to you. I'm in the military. When I get out, I'm going to go back home to New yeah. Orleans and I'm, I'll set up my stuff. But I want you to teach me. I don't want you to pay me. I'm going to sweep the floors. I'll do all the dirty work. I'll do anything you tell me to do. Just teach me.
0: It's the best way to learn everything. To do right? everything. I said, I'm, not, I'm
1: not here to, to make money. I'm here to learn so I can make money at a later date in my life. And, and by going that route, Everybody helped me. Yep. Everybody helped yep. me. When I got to Kesler, there was John Cook and Sons. He had two sons that worked there. They had big, big operation. I mean, they did everything from mice to elephants. I mean, they did it all. And so I walked in there with my son. And I guess at that time, you know, he was six years old. And I was in uniform. I said, I, I want to come and learn. Teach him how to do it. And, he said, and Mr. Cook was one of these real tough guys. He said, oh, you want to learn taxidermy, my boy? And he wanted his son. I said, yes, sir. And he says, uh, I said, well, how much you how much you expecting to be paid? I said, I don't want no money. I said, I'll sweep the floors. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. But then teach me how to do, you know, how to mount a squirrel, how to mount a deer head, how to paint a fish, how to do all this kind of stuff. I said, I have some knowledge of it, but, you know, I, I need more. He said, okay. So this was uh, on a Saturday morning that I went there. He says, uh, well, when can you come? I said, I can come in the evenings from about five to seven. I said, then I go pick up my, I'll put my son I, he gets out of school. I'll put him in daycare. I'll come for two hours and I'll go pick him up and I'll go home. And I can come on Saturday and I come on Sunday. He said, I don't work on Sundays. I said, okay, that's good. I said, that's a large day. I said, I don't want to work on Sunday neither. He said, but can you work Saturday? I said, I work all day Saturday. He said, what time can you be here? I said, what time do you want me here? He said, you'll be here at 7 o'clock Saturday morning. Be ready to work. I said, okay. I said, I'll get. I'll have somebody to watch my, my my son. I said, I'll be here at 7 o'clock. So 7 o'clock. I was there 10 minutes to 7. So I got there 10 minutes to 7. I'm waiting for him. And the sign on the door says it opens at 9 o'clock. And it closes at whenever. That's what when the sign says. Think nine, he, think nine he was testing you? Yeah, 9 to whenever. I said, well, hey, come in early. We, maybe we got, we got some stuff to do. But he shows up at 9 o'clock. He said, what time you got here? I said, 10 minutes to 7. You told me to be here for 7. He said, Then you know we open up at 9? I said, I, said, I, said, I said, but you told me to be at 7. He said, did you see the sign? I said, yeah, I saw the sign. But you didn't tell me to come at 9. You told me to come at 7.
0: What was his deal? He was testing me. Yeah.
1: He was testing me just to see if I'd show up. And then if I'd be mad when he got there. Yeah, I wasn't mad.
0: So what, So you, you started to learn some of your craft from him?
1: Yeah. So they taught me. They taught me a lot. They taught yeah. me a lot. I learned. I stayed there a year. And they taught me a lot. And then when I went to the Philippines... I had a lot of clients. I opened. I had my own little studio at my house, mm-hmm. and people were coming from all over the country because uh, there was an American. American taxidermy, American Taxi. Taxiderm. And I, there were people were coming for hours and hours driving. And what was the number one? Uh, over there was piece wild, that you were wild pigs and yeah. deer. Wild okay. pigs, deer. But we had fish. We had ducks. We had, I did Was everything. that
0: profitable for you?
1: It was, but it was more of a hobby. Yeah. It was more of a hobby, but then I was thinking it's about. It's great retiring. when you can turn a hobby
0: into something that makes you. Some and then money, when I huh? met
1: my met, met my my wife, well, she was my girlfriend at the time, and she would come in. She'd watch me, you know, skinning animals and everything, you know. And a lot of girls, you know, they see blood and they're like, "Ooh, I don't know, I don't want, I don't want to do this." She was right there watching me, and watching me, watching me. But what I wasn't aware of, she was learning. Yeah, she was paying attention. And so, and at that time, I'm, I was also, I'm a bowler, a bowler, a bowler international all over the world. And I was a top class bowler. My average was about 220 at the time. So I was bowling in Manila, bowling all over the Philippines.
0: That was just a hobby?
1: Yeah, yeah, that was my hobby. As in Thailand, no, I, pulled, I made a lot of money while I was in Thailand. So another
0: hobby that was becoming yeah, that lucrative. Did,
1: huh? profitable to yeah. me. But getting back, so from from there, when I retired, I came home, and I worked for Joe Combs, who was the world champion taxidermist, mm-hmm. and he was right here in Gretna. I mean, it was just 10 minutes from, from my house. So I worked with him for a year. And then he moved to Robert, Louisiana, and he went to go up there with me, he, come Rick, come on Rick, come with me. He bought 19 acres, he gave me, a, he was gonna give me an acre of land so I could build my house on there. Title free and everything. My wife says, no, she's a city girl. She wasn't going to the country. <laughs> she wasn't going. So I opened up my own, after he left, I opened up my own shop, and I was doing taxidermy, doing heads, the alligator heads, and uh, doing all kinds of stuff. And then I found a niche where I could, make my bases, and then uh, sell them to the taxidermist. Mm-hmm. Ready-made. They would just take them out the box, They were ready done. All they'd do is add the fish to it, the bird or the animal, whatever it was. And I had a color catalog and everything. I had I had so much business I couldn't, I couldn't keep up. And then a guy came in, this time I'm gonna get to the bar a broth, but this guy comes in, he's got two pheasants, and he's got a photograph of him and his son. He said, This is the first time I ever hunted with my son. Me and my son been deranged from each other for 20 years. We went on a hunting trip. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to us. He says, Can you do a painting and put the pheasants into this c- scenery? And I said, Yeah, I could do that. So I painted a canvas, a big canvas, painted the, the background. He, there was a barn in the background, it had a pine, a trees and everything, uh, fences and everything. And then I made a cornstalks and I made it three dimensional, but I didn't like what I what I had done. But he loved it. He loved it. And so, uh, it's kind of like your first fish. Yeah, I had yeah. I had a job on it. a fireboat, so I, I was working seven days on and seven days off. Well, I had an accident on a fireboat and I broke my back, and I was laid up. I had back surgery, and I was watching TV. I'm slipping channels, and all of a sudden I see this guy by the name of Bob Ross. And I watched him, and I'm like, I was hooked. I was hooked. Man, I I watched this guy paint. And I'm like, man, can I do that? I think I can do that. And so my back got better. I contacted Bob. Come to find out, he he was in the Air Force at the same time. We both was in for 22 years. We both retired at the same time. And, uh,
0: and for people that don't know, what what did Bob Ross do in the uh, in the Air Force?
1: Bob Ross started out as a nurse, and then he went in as a first sergeant. And a first sergeant is he's in charge of the barracks with all the all the guys that's living mm-hmm. single barracks. So he's always yelling, yelling, yelling at these guys.
0: I, what I th- I thought he was a drill sergeant.
1: No, he was not a drill sergeant.
0: So he was he was just yelling in the barracks because I know I know the story everyone knows about how when he got out of the Air mm-hmm. Force, how he said, I will never yell again.
1: But he, he was tight. not a drill sergeant. OK, uh, he was he was a uh, first sergeant. Mm-hmm. And so being a first sergeant, though, you're basically a drill sergeant because mm-hmm. you got a bunch of knuckleheads that you got to keep in line. That, yeah. yeah. And so that's that's how that happened. So when I, I called the company and I found out where he was, it was mm-hmm. Murfreesboro, Tennessee, in 1990. So I called him up and uh, I actually got to talk to him on the phone. And uh, he says, "I'm doing uh, uh, down in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Come, come see me." So I went down there. What
0: was his voice like on the phone? Was he was he just as peaceful? Yeah,
1: yeah, very peaceful. <laughs> you almost had to, you had to really listen to him. You really talked low. Yeah. And so, anyway, I go down there and I um, introduce myself to him. Well, we kind of hit it off because we were old Air Force buddies, you mm-hmm. know. And so we talked a little bit about military, but not much, you know, cause I didn't want to talk about military. He didn't either. We would talk about painting. Yep. And that was my whole thing. So, anyway, I stayed down for a whole week. And then he says, he says I'm having another class. Uh, he says, come back in, a, uh, it was like almost six months, seven months. He so said, go home, practice, 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 because it goes in series. They do a a, a yeah. landscape first, one, two, and three, but you got to get invited back to number three to be an instructor, so I got invited back to be an instructor, and so that's a different class. They teach you a lot of the, the little techniques and a lot of also how to deal with, with people. You know, you got to know how to talk to people when you're, when you're doing paintings, you know, yeah. you can't. You can't start calling them all kind of names. He get mad and all this kind of stuff. He has a, he, there's a system that Bob had, and you followed it as long as you followed it, which was easy for me, because I came, almost come from that same background. It seems like, yeah. and uh, I fell right into it. I loved it, and so when I got out, uh, I got my certificate. Uh, I started teaching. You know, I was teaching at the Navy base i had go and ten students every Saturday. I would go, you know, set them all up. And,
0: so did and teach. you? Uh, did you start that as like an LLC, or how? How did you form that business? Was are you? Were you? Just no, like I was, a sole I was just
1: now. I was just freelancing. 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 Just. I, I mean, I had so many people. Once I put it out there, they. I, I was a Bob Ross instructor, and, yeah. and I was the only one. Oh Lord, I had so many people calling me. There's no way so could keep so up. So You're doing
0: taxidermy. You're doing portrait photos or paintings for people mm-hmm. in the Bob yeah. Ross style.
1: Mm-hmm. And I was still working. Well, I well after I got hurt, I never did really go back to work. Going up the fireboat, so yeah, I yeah. started my own. I was doing tax-dummy, so I started doing a three-dimensional. I was doing paintings and adding, adding the the, the birds, the
0: fish, the ducks. And was that, it was, had you seen things like that before? Because no. it's it's you know your your style is something that's very unique, and no, I that, hadn't seen it before.
1: Uh, I had kind of,
0: a, a, what we would say mixed media. Lots Mix, of different. The mixed
1: media, everything comes. I I, I believe in everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. And God directs me. Mm-hmm. He's my, he's the guy I go to. That's my number one man. I go to him for everything, every day. Without, when I wake up in the morning, I go in that prayer room. And, uh, you know, I pray, I, set, I burn three candles. And say my prayers. I pray for the people that I, that I want to pray for. And uh, he guides me. So that's- and
0: for, for uh, any of the listeners who hadn't seen the video that I put up, when we talk about a prayer room, a lot of people might have a little space in their house where they do some prayer or, you know, sometimes you have a full room. Now, Mr. Rick has an entire room that's been painted floor to ceiling with a life-size Jesus statue and mm-hmm. uh, mary mm-hmm. and at one point how many animals was it 19 19, 19. taxidermy animals and 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 i want to make a point here too you know we get there there's sometimes a stigma with taxidermy and the taxidermy that we have primarily in texas for instance it's all trophies uh you know a guy goes out and he'll 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 shoot the stag And and then say I want this mounted. Uh your taxidermy, the reason that we have so many pieces of yours in our shop. And by the way, anytime we talk about the monkeys, the monkeys are all art pieces. I always none of them are real. None of them are real. I always point that out to our customers too. And I actually I actually bought one of your your pieces that didn't have any fur on it so that I can point it out. yeah the
1: mannequin out. you bought a mannequin to so show how, how beautiful all the, fiber,
0: the fiberglass mm-hmm. and the painting yeah but um the the taxidermy pieces that you do actually do the ones that i have something you told me before is that you like to take the animal back to its most beautiful right. point and and natural so habitat the my favorite piece of yours that we have in our shop is called the drinking deer and we get so many uh compliments on this piece where it's and, and people that have seen taxidermy their entire lives. And they say, I've never seen somebody put a deer back into... Uh, natural this, habitat. It's yeah. natural habitat. This is a beautiful, uh, full 3D piece of... Drinking water. It's coming to a little pond with, with leaves coming off of it. And the deer is, is going down and drinking water. And, um, you know, you... I think that that's so close to the the big fad these days of people taking their old pets mm-hmm. and making you know the yeah. stuff of them and then and then they want to have this pet that they've loved for so many years right. and realistically, no one ever loved the deer mm-hmm. that you put in to make his drinking deer, and now everybody loves it, and everyone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can 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 love it the way that it was uh, at its most beautiful. Mm-hmm. So so you have a different way of approaching taxidermy. The, one, the
1: deer that I have in the prayer room when you, you that some films that you've taken that deer uh, the deer is mentioned in the Bible uh, quite a few times, mm-hmm. and uh, that particular uh, passage of that one is uh, the deer licking the hand of Jesus is how I made it. I mean in real life that didn't happen, but uh, He's the deer is mentioned quite a few times and, and that's one of the main themes that I wanted when I did this piece was to have as all the animals come to pay the last respects to jesus that's that he was licking the hand and wound of jesus
0: that's a it's a beautiful and very unique uh piece in your house and and that room leads right into your workshop and I mean you this house you definitely can tell walking in that somebody that's just exploding with artistic creativity <laughs> for many years lives here. Tell me, tell me about uh, you know you were you were you were doing all of this freelance work and you had side businesses. What was the decision to take your your wares and your pieces and go into the French market, which you know historically the French market has been operating for hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah, going back to was it was a food market, right? Hundreds right, of
1: years yeah, ago. yeah, uh, in the, the when we were kids, we would uh, my mom would take us. Um, we had the, the car we only one old, old beat up forty seven Chevy or something like that, and we'd go to the French Market. We'd go, and at that time there was no bridge, so you had to catch the ferry. Oh, wow. So you get on a get on a ferry, and when you went to the, go buy produce at the French Market, that was the cheapest prices that you could buy all of them probably the freshest too. yeah all the freshest all yeah. every and it was almost a whole three-quarter of what you see now of the market now was three-quarters all food and then, there, then then they had vendors then they had artists and they had and stuff like that and then there's also people selling junk you yeah. know it was a yeah. junk junk shop we could go down there and you could buy a watermelon it's five for a dollar
0: <laughs> was it was uh was the t- the tourist boom as big back then? I know that I mean population wise, of course, it's mm-hmm. it's increased. But where when you would go to the French Market to go get your produce, did you still see tourists walking through there a lot? Yeah, because Cafe
1: Du Monde was there. Yeah. New Orleans always yeah. had, and they had the they still had the the the, the carriages and the, the horses. And for know. people
0: that don't know, Cafe Du Mon, the famous uh, coffee and beignets, is about three blocks. Yeah, two and a half blocks from mm-hmm. from the French Market, yeah. all that right off Decatur.
1: There was there was tourists down there, yeah. you know, uh, and I say the the other part of the market. I guess they had at that particular time maybe fifty vendors. Right so like now we got three hundred and twenty vendors. Is
0: it surreal walking the same paths? You know, when you go and set up your stall with all of your mm-hmm. your, your gator heads and your masks? is it surreal walking? Those same paths that you walked when you were a little kid,
1: um, yeah. In matter of fact, it's it's uh, probably more to me than some people because oh yeah, you know we were also brought up during segregation. Yes, you know, and so if you walk in the market now, there's one bathroom for the men, one bathroom, and there's one water fountain. Hmm. When we were kids, was there was too- two water fountains. One said white only. One said colored only.
0: Yeah.
1: And there's no bathroom for the colored.
0: hmm
1: It was only white. So growing up Because
0: and, I guess they, they didn't want African Americans even shopping there, I'd assume, huh? Yeah. They, they didn't,
1: you know, they, there was a water the water fountain was basically so, you know, the white didn't have to drink at the, with the blacks. Mm-hmm. That's the way it was, you know. And um, we've come a, a long ways. Mm-hmm. which was great for the world great for great for our country mm-hmm. but the french quarter is so unique it's very you know when i go there and i'm actually set up in there and i'm like i am at the french quarter in new orleans yeah you know which is a big deal it's uh we have a seniority system and i'm about in the middle i'm about in the yeah. middle we got guys that's been there for 50 years 50 years they've been at in the market
0: what are they selling
1: those two guys sell books, uh, I just used books. I walked by them today. Yeah. Um,
0: what a gig for fifty years! Just yeah, 50, books. They,
1: they they sold, you know just junk stuff, you know, yeah. old uh, old stuff. Um, they are the true real flea market.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, See, I tried to get them to change the name after Katrina, and call it the um, New Orleans Bazaar,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because good. because I want to take away the stigma of flea market because flea market you think because we have a license okay yeah. and we have to turn ch- turn in our taxes every month on the 20th when I mean, we have to pay our taxes so we have to charge tax well people in the flea market don't want to ch- pay taxes
0: who's calling it the flea market I've never heard of uh, vu- that
1: one the, uh, the New Orleans Vucuree yeah the, 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 the big boys
0: I've just never heard the, the, the French market referred to as a flea market down there I've always thought of it as a higher end. The well,
1: Fre- French market consists of 16 blocks. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so 16 square blocks. So that of,
0: area down at the end, you're saying that's the flea market, which the, we should change flea, to the bazaar. Yeah, the
1: flea market is in the French quarter. Yeah. The French market. Yeah, yeah. The, the French market. The French market. The French market is the whole square. Mm-hmm. And the flea market has to be inside of that. Yeah. So... We should have called it the New Orleans Bazaar, and the reason being, we got. Um,
0: Can you just call you? Maybe, maybe you just put that onto a sign, and maybe that's what your stall is going to be called, and you'll be the, the coolest one on the block. And, there. But you can't put signs
1: up like oh, that. Man, right. there's a lot of restrictions, and it's political, very political.
0: What do you What do you think about the tourists that come through there?
1: Love them. Yeah, love love ninety five percent of them. Yeah, yeah, five percent of them say. that you know, that, I, I they should have I, stayed home.
0: I, you know, and I come from Los Angeles and I come from, I grew up in Hollywood and I, you know, that's Mm -hmm. a, that's a tourist zone too. And I can't stand tourists. And anytime I try to, anytime I visit somewhere, I try as hard as, as possible to not be like a tourist, Mm -hmm. but I, I do, I would assume that around here. You guys are happy to have the tourists coming back,
1: yeah, yeah, i mean that that's the livelihood, you know I'm fortunate that I have a uh, a paycheck coming in from the government, and uh when I got hurt out on the river, I was able to get a compensation from that and uh just recently um I've been to the v a which I've never been to the v a in all these years I retired in nineteen eighty three never went to the v a for anything mm-hmm. because we had a navy base right here where we could get our medical stuff done and uh, so then they closed that one up and they went to went to Belchase and uh, but just recently I've been I've been going to the VA and uh, but tourists uh, of New Orleans uh you got and you got people here that come in on the the the, the cruise ships now we have cruise ships oh, here Oh really?
0: Yeah. Where are they parking? Where's the port? It
1: was right, right there at the, the Riverwalk. On the, right. on the Mississippi? hmm Yeah. Jeez, uh, Every imagine. Saturday, every Sunday, uh, we, oh, that's you know, great. we have them come in. we yeah. so got people coming in from Canada, from all over the world, you know, on the cruise I know, ship.
0: Uh, yeah, I noticed a lot of uh, uh, foreigners that that seemed European. I saw, I saw yeah, a, a lot, lot of European. Europeans. Yeah, the, and that's so all
1: that's your cruise ships. That's, that's your all cruise ships, ships coming in. Yeah, mainly oh, cruise ships. And yeah.
0: their pockets are just loaded with cash.
1: I wish so. They, or,
0: or they're leaving it in their stateroom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, is it lucrative? I mean, it, is, it, is it worth the hassle? Because like we talked about today, uh, you you were there probably about uh, 12 hours, yeah. right? You got there yeah. about 6 a.m. and mm-hmm. you left 6 p.m. Yeah. And I, I came and stopped by about 3 o'clock and you guys were were just exhausted. Yeah. And, and then you have to load back up. You have but, to
1: pack all that stuff up. So is we had it, 19 containers.
0: Is it lucrative? Um, is it worth yeah, it? It's worth it. It's worth it. It's
1: worth it. Um,
0: cause I know you like talking to the people too. Yeah,
1: And my wife, my wife is the best salesperson in the whole she's entire great. French market. She's worked. She's worked in, uh, other, for other stores. She yeah. worked in stores. She worked, uh, at the Marriott. She worked at gifts, gift shops. Yeah. And, uh, she worked for one of the top jewelers in, the, in a French market, in a flea mm-hmm. market. Um, miss Lee. Uh, she worked for her for many years and so everybody wanted to hire her. So one day, how you ask me how I got to the market is because of her. Yeah. Uh, I, I was doing a lot of things, creating a lot of things. And I had no place to sell it. Uh, other than there was a place on Royal Street which is called Russell, Richard Russell's Gallery. And it was a beautiful gallery. And uh, I went down there and I brought a few of my pieces. The first piece I brought down there was a gorilla playing a saxophone we call him (laughs) saxicone and if you would have saw that one you would probably you definitely would have bought that one yeah i'd be a buyer there and so anyway we put that one in there and um so i sold a few pieces out of there but my wife was like let's go down to the french market because she had some girlfriends that worked there and uh i wasn't really crazy about it at first we went down there we started in 2001 um I mean I take it back yeah 2001 and then when Katrina hit uh, uh, my house got damaged I had $80,000 damage to my house and my back was out so I, I stopped the market which I shouldn't have done because you could, you could still set up one day a month yeah. you know a couple of days but anyway I was I was I was fed up I was tired I was just frustrated and I gave it up and then I went back three years later I went back again but I lost That seniority, three-year seniority, really would have helped me more now. But I'm okay because my booth is inside where before I used to be outside.
0: So with all of the businesses, all the different ways that you've taken your art and your trade and turned it into lucrative things, have you accomplished your dreams? What you set out to do, have you accomplished some of those dreams?
1: Well, at 78, I still got a lot of dreams.
0: That's good. That's the right answer.
1: I got a lot of dreams. No, I no, I can't say I haven't I haven't reached it yet. I've 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 reached some some many dreams that I've had that I accomplished, but there's more dreams. So I didn't I am not finished because I'm not satisfied. Um and the only reason why I haven't finished is because God's letting me create new things, do new things. What's, i'm into flow art for people that know about flow art unbelievable that. yeah crazy uh beautiful stuff i mean it blows my mind
0: so with all of your wealth and knowledge what's the one thing that you could you could put out there for a young business person some young entrepreneur that may be just getting started what's that one thing that you wish that you had heard back when you were you were just getting started in your early 20s
1: Desire. Have the desire of what you're going to do. That's good. Because desire, from that, will bring you to school. It will bring you to mm-hmm. learning more. Uh, trying to, uh, you, don't, you know, you don't have to be a total perfectionist, but try to be the best that you can be.
0: Yeah.
1: Try to get as close as perfect as you possibly can be. Because uh perfect is is perfect
0: where can people find your art these days
1: uh right now at the flea market uh I'm usually down at the end by the mint I'm either either one forty four there's there's numbers up on up on the yeah. uh, the the rafters I'm at usually number one forty four sometime at one forty three on the other side but hopefully I can stay at one forty four because yeah. uh I like the spot. And uh, I have good neighbors. I have real good neighbors on both on all around me. We all get along. We got a lot of people from Africa, from us, uh, uh, Senegal, mm-hmm. Senegal, great people.
0: So, uh, you know, come down, find you down at the French yeah, Market. But, 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 I had that question on there. I, I had my last question. It says, "Any plans on ever leaving New Orleans?" And I, and I thought that I wrote that as a uh, a joke, a rhetorical. And I thought you were going to say, no, you'd have to drag me out of here kicking and screaming. But you want to finally retire. Yeah, yeah. Finally kick back.
1: I want to kick back. Uh, we have a house in the Philippines. Yeah. And as uh, a matter of fact, we just got back. We went November 4th. I bet it's we, gorgeous, huh? And we came back January 20th. We it's was at 79 there. days. Yeah, I loved it, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, I live, but... I have a very small house. Yeah. Uh, my wife's sister stays there. That's smart. But we live in we live in with the people. Yeah. We we not no mansion. We are not down the street well, from. If from if you had Cookie a big County. house
0: there, you know that you would fill it up with monkeys and art and.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I definitely would fill it up. But I, but I'm, when I'm there, I also I paint. Yeah. I, I I do my Bob Ross painting while I'm there.
0: Beautiful. Enjoy that. Yeah. So how how long do you think people can still come visit you in New Orleans? Oh, uh, what's the plan?
1: Well, my plan is to sell this house, which is um, this is a task. Maybe my plan maybe is not the plan that God's got for me. Yeah. I'm letting Him guide me. That's where I want to go. I'm telling Him what I want to do, where I want to go, but He may He may right now sell in the house. I don't know how I can get out of this house to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of stuff. You do? and a lot selling of stuff. things is not easy. And I no, went it's to not. I went to a a estate sale to see how how it worked and everything. I was not happy it's with the estate sale no. at all. I
0: I've, I've gone to I've gone to hundreds of estate sales in my time. That's, you know, I've done, I've done a lot of buying and selling yeah. in the past and consignment and then through um, through my shop and other shops. I've gone through hundreds of estate sales. I used to do it for fun. And at the end what it did for me was cure me of the disease of collecting things. Mm-hmm. Cuz man, I do not want to ever have an estate sale where people yeah. are walking through your stuff and coughing and, and bargaining for a buck and it's that's, that's it is sad.
1: I went I went to a estate sale right down the street from me. Yeah. And the guy that was doing it actually happened to be a, be a good friend of mine. He's also a taxidermist, but his 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 wife was running the show. And I walked in there, they got this beautiful painting on the wall. And I recognized the artist's name. And I'm like, how much is that painting? And the guy's t- Tommy Garcia. I said, Tommy, how, how much is that painting? Now sales was on Saturday and Sunday. Mm-hmm. So we went on Sunday. And, uh, so everyone's
0: already passed Yeah, on so it.
1: everybody already packed, bought almost 90% of the stuff. I said, how much is that painting? He said, well yesterday it was $60. He said, "Today yeah, it's $30
0: and you said I'll give you 15
1: and I said soul <laughs> okay. give it to me That's but, I didn't, what, yeah, but yeah. I didn't buy it for myself I bought it for my for my, my cousin I wanted to give her a beautiful gift for her house and this thing I knew what it was worth mm-hmm. so and even Tommy said, he said Tommy, he said Rick go on eBay he said look at it he says the thing is about six six seven hundred dollars I came home after I bought it I looked at it I went to my cousins and I said here's I said she said, Oh this is God, it's beautiful and everything, you know. And she said, Where do you get it? I said, It's yours. Yeah. It's yours. And several, then I told several her several times said,
0: I've gone into an estate sale that that made me a little sad and I have given them more than they than they offered.
1: But to answer your question, uh I'm gonna go as soon as I can. Yeah. Whenever that whenever that date comes up.
0: Well, you know, and and half of me hopes that it's uh, in the in the distant future, and then half of me hopes that it's yeah. it's as soon as you want it to be, yeah. because I think you've you've earned the right to yeah. to kick back.
1: We're gonna go there six months. We come back here six months. We're gonna buy a little mobile home. Yeah. And we're gonna buy a mobile home and put it in one of the lots that they have here in, in West Wego, or Gretna, or somewhere. Yeah, and just travel back and forth and come back to see. The, I got nine grandkids and five great grandkids.
0: That's quite an accomplishment. Yeah. You've had quite a life, sir, and it's, yeah. it's still going. You've still got plenty of dreams to accomplish, and yeah. uh, I'm glad that you were able to uh, be a guest. I'm glad that I made it down to, to come and see you. Yeah. And, um, you know, I hope to see much more of you in the
1: future. Yeah, I've been to your store, and I hope to get back up that way and, uh, and yeah. see, see what y'all done to it, because I know you gotta y'all, come, y'all added you gotta a whole come lot to it. You've to come before you moved Yeah, I loved it. Now. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely, we uh, glad to see you. Glad you came down, and uh, next time yeah. we'll come your way. Hey, I gotta go see your son.
0: You gotta come see yeah. the boy.
1: gotta go. Gotta see Charlie and my girl Mimi. I love her music.
0: Mr. Rick, it's been good.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you.
0: See, I was not lying. What an amazing guy! Really happy I was able to talk with Mr. Rick, have that time. Not only for you guys, for me. I've wanted to uh, get his story down and have it there and. I wanted to hear the story too. Such an eclectic dude. And I was very surprised to learn about him, uh, about him leaving. Like I'd said, I thought it was going to be a kind of tongue in cheek joke saying, you know, when, when are you leaving New Orleans or any plans on ever leaving New Orleans? And I was, I was expecting a big, no, nah, they're never going to take me out of here on a stretcher. He's like, nope, I'm out. He's done enough years. Natives can always say that about the about the town they grew up in. So he's planning on going to his house in the Philippines whenever he can sell all of his stuff. Whether that'll happen, we'll have to wait and see. I know he's gotten some soldier, shoulder surgery since we talked, since I was out there. So all you guys can keep him in your thoughts and prayers, whatever you do. He's doing all right. Of course, his shoulder is part of his livelihood, not only his art but but his uh his his ability to function and, and sell at the market. All those things rely on him being pretty physically fit. And he's a very physically fit guy. He's in better shape than I am. But definitely an inspiration. Wish I lived closer so we could go out to dinner once a week. I could just listen to listen to him talk. Love the accent too, of course. That's Mr. Rick. That's him in a nutshell. And only a portion of him, too. We don't have enough time to cover everything that he he had to talk about. He's got so much to talk about. But great guy. Maybe we can have him on in the future again. So, uh, as I'd mentioned in my intro next week, we got Ryan Hitchin. Self-proclaimed jazz man. And I joke about that because I... I'm the one that put that in there. He did not proclaim himself a jazz man, but he is a jazz man. I don't know what else to say. He's a a singer and trumpet player, band leader, entrepreneur, businessman who has made a living for himself in the last decade playing the streets and bars, venues and clubs and hotels of New Orleans. And what an interesting life that is. And the guy grew up in Los Angeles. He was from Eagle Rock. I was in Burbank. He was in Eagle Rock, splitting his time in Burbank. We actually met way back uh, early middle school, went to a church youth group together. Both of us had kind of strayed away from that eventually before we got to high school, but we knew each other in this church youth group that was really popular. And uh, he was he was a good buddy. Really liked him. He lived up the street from me and uh, him and another guy, We we all knew each other and had those early sleepovers and Nintendo 64 and pizza hut, good Friday nights and all eventually lost touch as you sometimes do. But I found out uh, years ago that he was living in the French quarter playing jazz. So I just kind of followed him, you know, from a distance on social media. And then this year decided to finally reach out and and just see what he was doing and update him on my life and had a great talk. And when I, when I figured out that I was going to do that conference and that I could come down and knock out an episode with Mr. Rick, I'm like, what better time to, to try to try to work it with Ryan. And, and I'm glad it did work out. And he kind of bent to schedule a little bit. We had a good breakfast and then we went and had a cup of coffee across the street from the the venue. He was going to play at the spotted cat. And we did a great uh, outdoor podcast. It'll be the first of its kind. I'm going to try to correct some of the audio issues. I'm still learning here but we basically just pass the mic back and forth and record it into my iPhone. I'll correct the audio. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a loose interview because we were in New or- New Orleans and you got to stay loose out there. I can't, can't do this, this very high end fancy in studio, uh, session like I do here in the back of the Dreamy peddler. So that'll be coming to you next week. Hope to have that up Sunday night. If not Monday, And it's a good episode. Part two of my New Orleans escapades, episode 106. You can find us on our socials, Pursuing the Dream Podcast. It's on Instagram and Facebook, so at Pursuing the Dream Podcast. Reach out to us with a question for one of our guests, for me, one of our future guests, anybody. You got a question for the Dalai Lama? We might have an answer for you info at dreamingpodcast.com I said that one wrong didn't I info at pursuingthedreampodcast.com again info at pursuingthedreampodcast.com so uh, hope you guys enjoyed it anyone has a chance to get down to New Orleans and go see Mr. Rick in the market go down and pay him a visit go buy one of his pieces of art His current stall is all the way to the back of the market and uh, he's got things that you just won't find at any other vendor down there because they're all hand done. He, of course, sells some of the masks and everything, but the majority of his stuff is stuff that he tinkers away in his workshop. An amazing guy. But I appreciate you uh, sticking with me today, tuning in, tuning in every week. We do have a little button now apparently on the Spotify side that allows you to help support the show. So your support goes towards the operating costs of this show every week, and there are costs. We appreciate anything you're willing to give or help out. If you don't want to give, no problem. Tune in anyway. There's always a seat at our house. Enjoy yourself. Give us a like or a follow, though, and that also helps us in lieu of a dollar how about that so until next week for pursuing the dream podcast this is jason robbins appreciate you guys tuning in look forward to chatting with you again at the next show hope you all have a great week and i will see you then